Well, good morning. We finally come to the end of our short series in the Gospel According to Joseph. I think this is the 13th or so. I actually didn't count them up, but uh, it was definitely longer than what I had originally anticipated. And we'll be covering covering a lot of territory today, the whole of chapter 50. Um, It'd be very easy to focus on the two death and burials, uh, the bookend, the middle section Um, But we're going to go through those rather quickly and um, focus mainly on the middle section. True story, back in June of 2012, about six years ago, a man by the name of Carl Erickson. Uh, He lives in South Dakota, 73 years old. He was sentenced to life in prison after admitting to the murder of a former high school classmate. Apparently, what had happened for over 50 years, he had simmered, allowed this bitterness and resentment to simmer in his own heart, and he had this grudge against this man, and it was all based on this one thing. He had a grudge on a a locker room prank of pulling a jockstrap over his head, and so he never forgave that man. And finally, at 73 years old, he goes over and rings the doorbell of Mr. Johnson, pulls out a gun, and shoots him dead. That's a true story, and it's to illustrate what can happen if we harbor these grudges and allow this resentment to build up within us. Our, today, our theme will be seeking and granting forgiveness, with, along with this warning against such resentment and not granting forgiveness. A rattlesnake, if he's cornered, apparently, and, and you're, you're, you're taunting it, will sometimes bite himself. He's in so much anger. And um, that's really a picture of what happens to us when we harbor these types of things. We're only hurting ourselves, right? We're not advancing our sanctification before a holy God. We'll see in our text that Joseph's brothers uh, have great fear, but their fear is irrational. It's doubting the fact, has Joseph really forgiven us? Now that daddy's gone, daddy's gone home, he's buried, now the law is going to come down. And it's going to come down hard on us. And so the brothers have this fear. It'll be very clear in our text. This is some 17 years after the beautiful picture of reconciliation that we saw back in chapter 45. And now they had just come from this fresh display of family unity of all of them going up and burying Jacob. And now they have this fear. Though Joseph had forgiven them back then, they never really confess their sin and ask for forgiveness to Joseph. That comes in our text today. So let's go ahead and read chapter 50, Genesis chapter 50. And I'll seek to read it in its entirety. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept, over him and kissed him. Joseph commanded his servants and the physicians to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Now 40 days were required for it, for such is the period required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. And when the days of mourning for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your sight, Please speak to Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am about to die in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. 
Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and then I will return. And Pharaoh said, Go up, bury your father, for he made you swear. And Joseph went up to bury his father, and along with him went all the servants of Pharaoh and the elders of his household and all the elders of the land of Egypt and all the household of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household. And they left only their little ones and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen. There also went up with him both chariots and horsemen and a very great company. And when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there for a great and sorrowful lamentation. And he observed seven days of mourning for his father. Now when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians. Therefore, it was named Abel Mizram which is beyond the Jordan, verse 12. Thus his sons did for him as he had charged them. For his sons carried him into the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field as a burial site from Ephron the Hittite. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Change of scene, verse 15. Now, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, that's literary language, right? They knew they were, they had just gone up and they've mourned for him for almost three months, right? So they know that he's dead. But it's, in other words, thinking about this. When they saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged us before he died saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you the transgression of your brothers and their sin for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him. Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result and to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And so he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household. And Joseph lived to be 110 years old. Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons, also the sons of Machar, the sons of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land, which he promised an oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made his son swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years old, and and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have to open up your holy word. We know that you tell us your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. 
It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of our heart. And so, Lord, we invite the searcher of hearts, the Holy Spirit, to come and to search our hearts out even during this hour as we would hear your truth proclaimed. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, very quickly, chapter 49 was about, in verse 1, it says, Jacob summoned the sons and and assembled them to tell you what would come in in the days to come, what would come about in the days to come. He prophesies, he gives, um, uh, he he mentions all of the sons. I'm not going to go over all of those, but there is a shift that from Joseph being the prominent one as a second to youngest, that now Judah will be the one to carry on into the messianic kingdom. And that's very clear, the scepter, the ruler's staff, it's all pointing to the line that David would come from and ultimately Christ and Christ who still reigns today. So as we come today to our text, Jacob, he had authority over the family and perhaps him being alive was a restraining element amongst the brothers that they would not fight and argue and fall into their old ways. But now, with his death, that he has now moved on, he's been buried, right? The brothers are troubled, thinking, how is Joseph going to respond now that daddy's gone? What, what kind of terror could come upon us? And this is, this is huge for them. Of course, they acknowledge their sin, and they ask for forgiveness. And, and so today, we're going to focus on this theme, and I've entitled it, Do You Practice Biblical forgiveness. And there's really two parts to that, isn't there? There's the seeking of forgiveness to those whom you have offended, but then also when others have offended you, the granting of forgiveness as those would come to you. Lloyd-Jones says, if we really know Christ as saviors, our hearts are broken and they cannot be hard to refuse forgiveness if someone comes. A familiar story, Corrie ten Boom, many of you know, uh, was put in a concentration camp with her sister Betsy after hiding Jews during World War II. And after the war, she was released and was speaking, going around speaking, went to Germany. It's in shambles from the war. She's speaking at a church on the theme of forgiveness and how God forgives. And in her own words, she says, it was a church in Munich, and I saw that man that balding man holding that felt cap and the way he walked, and she recognized him as a former guard in that concentration camp. And so the guard comes up afterwards, everyone else has left. You mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk. I was a guard there. And he goes on and he says, but I've become a Christian, and I know that God has forgiven me of all the cruel things I did there, but I want to hear it from your lips as well. And he puts out a hand to her, will you forgive me? She goes on with much verbiage. You can Google this story. It's very popular. It's in the Hiding Place book as well. How the, the wrestlings that she had where she could not do it. She's fumbling in her pocketbook. She's praying, Lord, God, help me. What am I going to do here? And suddenly, after praying, she reaches out her hand and says, I forgive you, brother, And she said, I forgive you with all of my heart. And she says, for that moment when we grasp each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner, I knew God's love more intensely than I ever had before. Forgiveness isn't easy. Granting forgiveness, especially those who've been harmed greatly. I mean, she saw her sister die um, in this 
concentration camp. In fact, and other family members, I believe, and she alone survived. But it really is a picture of the gospel when we forgive. Well, let's move quickly now through uh, verses 1 through 14. And I do mean quickly. Let me pick it up at 49.33. When Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into his bed and he breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Now we've seen in the past some of the times that Joseph weeps. He weeps often. These are tears of joy, right? He sees his brothers. He sees his family. He sees Benjamin. He hears that daddy's okay as he's there in Egypt and as they're coming to get food. But this time it's tears of grief. And they embalm him. This is an Egyptian practice. The Jews typically did not do that. But the Egyptians did that to treat the, the body with some respect and also in its afterlife and, and, their, and their views. So for 40 days, the physicians embalm. Another 30 days allotted for mourning. mourning. We see that, uh, for example, in Numbers and in other places of the law to allow 30 days for mourning. So hence the total of 70 days. And this tomb in Hebron became a monument of faith. Remember, Abraham had bought that, Isaac, and and everyone is buried there. And so Jacob wanted to be buried there too. And that's in the promised land. So it's an indication of the faith that God will fulfill the promises in making the people as many as the stars of the sky and giving the land. And so it was an indication of faith in that. Now, at the end of this little section, you see that this isn't just a a, you know, a, a, a group of five or ten traveling up, but this is a huge entourage. Um, I gave emphasis to it as I was reading. You've, you've got all the elders of the households and the elders of the land of Egypt that went up. You also have, um, which would be all the rich and famous, and then all of Jacob's family and the children, only the very little ones were left behind, and then the military as the chariots and the horsemen go up as well. And that, that whole scene kind of foreshadows the Exodus, which would come 400 years later, remember, under Moses, after they've grown for 400 years in Egypt, and God brings them out, and they, the entourage, the, all the people of God travel north out of Egypt. And then quickly, Joseph's last days, you see there, verse 22 to 26, he lives to be 110, that's about the average age for an Egyptian man in that day, and so... Notice how the, the length of days is shorter and shorter as time goes on. And so uh, uh, he passes away at 110. And that's really remarkable. How many years did he spend in Egypt? He was 17 when he was sold into slavery, right? And he went to Egypt. He never left Egypt to go back to the promised land. So not over 90 years, 93 years in Egypt. In verse 25 where he says, he, he swears that you will carry my bones up out of here um, is an indication of his faith in the covenant promise to Abraham. And in fact, that's mentioned in the Hall of Faith in the book of Hebrews. And then they embalm him and put him in a coffin. So the children of Israel carried around the body of Joseph for 400 years, right? Well, let's move on now to verses 18, uh, 15 to 18 now, zooming in on the central text here. And the first point under this head is humbly seek forgiveness from those you have sinned against. 
Now, Joseph's brothers think that he had been holding a grudge. As I said, daddy's gone. He's finally going to exact revenge, although that's completely foreign to verse 21. If you look at Joseph's actual words, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. So their fears are completely irrational. They have this, this fear of doubt. Has he really forgiven? And I'm, by the way, I'm convinced that these truths that we're going to look at from here on is vital in the Christian life. It's, it's immensely practical for us. They lack assurance that Joseph had truly forgiven them. The proverb says, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. So here the brothers are acting in fear, not in faith. All of those years, it's not as though Joseph was looking down their nose, his nose at his other brothers and making snide remarks and, and giving evidence that perhaps he had not truly forgiven them. There was none of that. In fact, what we can assume from his character is that he's done nothing but shower them with blessing upon blessing and extend kindness upon kindness. And yet, their guilty consciences there remain. Remember back in chapter 42, a couple months ago, when we were in there, over 20 years before, they acknowledged their guilt, right? They're standing before Joseph. They don't know that it's Joseph, right? And, and uh, uh, there's a translator there that's translating to them, but he understands the Hebrew. When the brothers say this in verse 21, then they said to one another, truly we are guilty concerning our brother, because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, and yet we did not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. And so way back then, their conscience is awakened. We've done wrong. Later, there's a beautiful picture of reunion and reconciliation. But it's not until our text here where they actually seek forgiveness. It's application. We are to seek forgiveness quickly when we have sinned. Remember, we read it. Our brother read it in Matthew 5, verse 23. Therefore, if you're presenting your offering to the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and present your offering. It says application to us before we come to worship. Before we come to lift up our, our voices in song to the King of Kings, before we take the Lord's Supper, we're to examine ourselves. Have we offended someone? Has someone offended us? And to make that right. It's grievous how long people can leave some conflicts go unresolved for such a long period of time. And by the way, even if the other person is more at fault, Take the high road and seek forgiveness for your sins, right? What does it say in Matthew 7, 3? It says, why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye and you don't see the log which is in your own eye? And so even if, if you're deeming that the other person is more guilty, realize that there's still sin on your part and take care of that and trust the Lord with the rest. Verses 16 and 17, the brothers uh, notice the brothers send messengers. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, and so it's not as though they go and stand before Joseph, right? But they send 
messengers. And some commentators speculate maybe that was Benjamin and Judah, maybe his favorites, or it could have been somebody else. We don't know who it was, but it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily the brothers all collectively. They sent a message. They lacked assurance that they had truly been forgiven. Now, notice what it says here. They sent a message saying, your father charged us before he died saying, now do, do you think Jacob actually said those words? If Jacob wanted to communicate that message, what would Jacob have done? He would have told Joseph himself, right? So already this kind of wrapped in a little bit of a lie, their confession's not perfect, and it's, all, it's already wrapped in some deceitfulness already here off the bat. At least I'm, I'm fairly convinced of that. Um, Joseph, or, uh, Jacob would have communicated that himself. So their plea for forgiveness, brethren, is sloppy, it's messy, it's twisted, it's not perfect. Let's read it. Thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Brothers sinfully attributed this request to their father, but their plea is full of confession and owning their own sin and and a recognition of their desperate need to truly have this exchange of being forgiven and seeking forgiveness. Romans 2 verse 15 says, uh, speaks about our conscience bearing witness with us. And so in this text, twice they, please forgive, please forgive, occurs twice in our text here. Also, they use unmistakable terms. They use biblical terms. They don't, you know, they, they, notice it's transgression and sin and the wrong that we have done. And the wrongs mentioned twice, transgressions mentioned twice, and sin. It's very clear that they are actually owning what they have done. By the way, they did not call their sin a mistake or a lapse of judgment. You know, it was hot that day and we, we weren't thinking clearly when we sold you into Egypt. It wasn't wrapped, filled with uh, excuses and blame shifting like sometimes we can do. But it's just laying it out there honestly. It's not, and again, the, the brothers couldn't point to anything to doubt this. In fact, let's just turn back to chapter 45. Chapter 45 is this beautiful picture of when Joseph reveals himself in verse 3. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father alive? Verse 4, please come closer to me. I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And then the brothers would know this, this has to be Joseph. Nobody else knows. We didn't tell anybody that. But notice these words, verse 5. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years to come. Verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant. Verse 8, now therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He's laying it out. that Don't be so hard on yourselves. This is all part of God's plan. 
And there's no indication here that he's harboring bitterness even back there. So the brothers could look back on that day with fondness when he finally reveals himself to them. It's not as though the brothers were afraid of injustice from their brothers or from Joseph, but they were afraid of true justice because their sins were gross and cruel and heinous and it was all wrong. It was wickedness. So Joseph here weeps again. And why does he weep here? Because he's already forgiven them from his heart. He's already forgiven them. And here they're coming again in this way. And, and, and you know, he, probably knowing that his father did not communicate this. So an imperfect confession and yet a confession and a seeking of forgiveness. How can you ask for forgiveness? First of all, beware of dealing with your sin just on the surface. Dig down into the heart, okay? Um, Sometimes we can just take the the sickle and kind of chop the weeds down, down to this level of what's the problem with that? Still roots, right? We need to pull it up from the roots. Deal with sin deep in the heart, first and foremost, not just on the surface. And use biblical language. It's not, uh, by the way, I'm sorry if I offended you, sort of like that. Like, if I did offend you, it's probably your fault, you know. That's not a confession. (laughs) In fact, uh, we highly recommend the book, The Peacemaker. Sometimes we have some materials by Ken Sandy on the back table. He lists these seven A's of confession. This is how complex a confession can be and should be. Now, and these are seven A's, and you might want to write these down unless you've reached sinless perfection, um, but, and uh, you can talk to me afterwards about that, and you can argue from the scripture that you have not. But first of all, address everyone involved. So if you have sinned and you're seeking forgiveness, you're going about seeking forgiveness, you need to address those involved. Secondly, avoid. Avoid if and but and maybe. For example, I'm sorry that I yelled... Um, I yelled, but you did this or that to make me yell, that kind of stuff. Admit specifically is number three. Name your specific sins as we see here. Fourth, apologize and and along with that, acknowledging the hurt and the pain that you have caused. Fifth, accept the consequences, restitution, whatever that may look like. Alter your behavior is number six, and that's the put off of the old man, putting on of the new habits, and then Ask for forgiveness, which is a binding transaction. Seven A's by Ken Sandy. Well, we've seen we are to seek forgiveness when we have seen, when we have sinned against someone. And secondly, we are to grant forgiveness to those who have wronged us. Joseph goes about comforting them here in verse 17 to 21. Uh, Verse 18, then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid for am I in God's place? So again, he's grieved, he's weeping because of what they're, the way they're going about this. Um, One commentator put it like this, everything he had done had been with an eye to their well-being. How pitiful as his 11 brothers groveled before him as if, he had threatened to take their lives. And that's really the picture you see here. We will be your slaves. I mean, you know, we're, we're in it for, for that, that much. And he, by the way, this is a picture of 
verse 18, where the brothers come and prostrate themselves. It's a fulfillment of that dream way back in Genesis 37, which got him in trouble, um, which was from God, but also made the brothers envious, made the brothers sell him, and caused them to hate him. And so this dream has been fulfilled yet again, even in our text today. But Joseph, notice what he does. He doesn't come up and, and say, as they're bowed down, and rub their noses in the dirt. Yeah, you, you want to know what it was like to be in prison those two years? Or how about in the pit as I cried out and you were eating your pita sandwiches and you didn't come up uh, to, to get me? You didn't come to rescue me. You want to know what it's like to feel like that? You want to know what it's like to be ripped away from my brothers, to be ripped away from my father and my family? Does he do any of that? No. What does he do? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Am I in God's place? I'm a fellow sinner. Do not be afraid. He offers these comforting words yet again. Am I in the place of God as a rhetorical question? Of course not. Joseph is God's instrument, but he has not been exalted to, to be God's judge dispensing judgment. Only God could work their evil transgressions and evil deeds for the ultimate good of God's people and even for their own good. That is something that no mastermind can do, uh, applauding or anything. You know, it's, it's something that only God can do, and it points to his holy sovereignty. And that's exactly what Joseph points to. Isn't that, remember back in 45, we just read it. He says three times specifically, God has sent me here. God has sent me here. In other words, Joseph has the eyes to see God's sovereignty working behind the scenes. Not all the details, but faith that he is in control. And so for us too, we don't have all the details of how things are going to work out with the various things we're struggling with and the doubts and the, the trials that we have. But we can rest that a sovereign God is in control of it all and is weaving a tapestry according to his grace, according to his good and our good, his glory and our good, that will be something magnificent that we could never imagine. God alone works his providence to bring glory to himself. J.C. Ryle says, it is a sad fact that there are few Christian duties, so little practice as that as forgiveness. There's application here. There's application here for what obviously Joseph has not harbored anything, right? We didn't see the rubbing their nose in it and, you know, just venting on them when they came. So obviously we know that he was not harboring a grudge. It says very clearly that he was not in the text. But what about us? We've all been hurt in many ways, we've been betrayed. But as Christians, we are not free to harbor grudges and bitterness. Despite it being the popular in the West and in the West American idea that I'm going to keep a grudge until I can get revenge, or the old Western movies, you know, it's finally revenge time at the OK Corral, or what, you know, this kind of mindset is popular in the world. But we know that the Bible does not teach that at all. We are not free to harbor bitterness and resentment and grudges. We who have been forgiven so much. You see, what, what needs to happen when you're tempted to do that is you need to go and you need to stand in front of the mirror and have dealings with your own sin. And then look up, 
I've been forgiven of all of this. Who am I to hold a grudge against anybody else? Remember the woman that came, Luke 7, the perfume at Jesus' feet, wiping his feet and all of that, and, and she was criticized, and what did Jesus say? She's forgiven much, and so she loves much. Now, verse 20. As for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Notice what Joseph does. He doesn't do this, oh, your sin wasn't so bad. You know, he doesn't do any of that. He acknowledges, yes, this was evil. And you know what? You did treat me poorly because he doesn't correct what was said. So he's he's agreeing with that. They did do evil against him. But he does, so he doesn't gloss over that. But God meant it for good. That's the amazing thing, how God could work this for good. We often doubt the fact that God is working in the background and therefore decide to become judgmental and think we better step in because God may not have seen this. God may not be going to work in this particular situation. Now, if the brothers had not repented... They would still be under the wrath of God, right? Um, God is working all of this for good. And sometimes God even uses the evil acts of men, right? That's how Christ got put on the cross. The evil acts of men to fulfill his purpose. Judas Iscariot fulfilled God's purpose in betraying our Lord for 30 pieces of silver. But the text goes on to say what? It'd be better for him if he was never born. Brothers and sisters, we have sinned grievously before a holy God. All men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all guilty before him. We are all fallen in Adam. We're guilty as as because we practice sin. We often sin boldly and purposely. But we can receive forgiveness only when we fully acknowledge our sin. We own it for ourselves. I'm guilty. I've committed that. And then we ask forgiveness, turning from our sin, repenting from our sin. And he is faithful to forgive us. The same is true in seeking forgiveness of others. And by the way, our sin is almost always worse than what others notice because all of these internal sins are not seen by others the secrets of our hearts. I was talking to a sister this past week that confessed that just shocked over some of the dark thoughts that would sometimes come into our mind and, and, and that that's real. Our, our hearts and our mind are deceitful and there's so much that people don't see. And so when people see X amount or whatever, our sin is so much greater. And yet God has committed to cleanse us by the shedding of the blood of His Son. Listen to one man, one commentator says this, God's plans concerning his people are always thoughts of good and blessing. Even if he opted to use the rod, it is not a rod of wrath, but it is a father's rod of chastisement for the temporal and eternal welfare of our beings. Our confession of faith speaks of the providence of God in chapter 5, paragraph 5, God's providence requires faith on our part in this particular section i've edited it down the the most wise righteous gracious god does sometimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and corruptions of the heart and chastising them 
and, and all of these other things and other just and holy ends. Why? So that whatsoever befalls any of his elect is by his appointment and for his glory and for their good. We can rest in that. Whatever befalls us, it's for our good. This verse here is a precious promise. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God always intends our good. Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans that I have for you, to declares the Lord, plans of welfare, plans of goodness. And of course, Romans 8, 28, right? We know that God works all things for good to those that fear him. Verse 21, we see it again. The repetition, by the way, the words, the Hebrew poetry that's included here and the repetitions is worth noting. So therefore, verse 21, do not be afraid. He says it yet a second time. What a blessed promise. He says, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. Now that dad is gone, I will continue to do these things. This is wonderful. And then notice the phrase after he's done talking that Moses included. Uh, you know, just so there's a little bit more to just the exchange of words, right? But so he comforted them and spoke kindly to him. Do you know what that means? That means a whole lot more dialogue took place that's not recorded in the scriptures. And the overall description of that is not rubbing noses in it, but coming and comforting them and speaking kindly to them assurance and assuring them. When we hold grudges, we're seeking to take the place of God. Well, what should you do if the person has not sought forgiveness from you, but it's clear that they've sinned against you? What should you do in that situation? Well, again, you can't harbor the grudge and seek to exact revenge. You have to put your sinful anger to death Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, live at peace with all men. As a true Christian, we can have a forgiving attitude towards the offender, hoping that someday they will actually seek forgiveness. We see this illustrated in our Lord, and not so much of hoping one day, but But what is Jesus? One of the seven sayings from the cross is, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Read a story of a daughter estranged from her father, um, writing dozens and dozens of letters, seeking to be reconciled. And every letter the father sent back unopened. Every letter the father sent back unopened. And had he opened one of those, he would have saw the pouring out of her heart and desiring reconciliation. Augustine says it like this, if you are suffering from a bad man's injustice, forgive him lest there be two bad men. You get the idea. If you're not going to forgive, at least at some level, there's a deeper transaction that takes place if a person comes and, and recognizes and asks for forgiveness. But can you imagine if you held grudges for every single person that sinned against you that's never asked for forgiveness. Many will offend us who are not Christians, who do not even understand what forgiveness is. We can't bear grudges on all of them. And look, just as Jesus and God has loved us while we were what? Enemies, right? He loved us. So too, 
we can love our enemies. Matthew 5 and verse 44. And part of that is having a spirit of forgiveness, praying and trusting that in time they will come. Now look, Joseph had to wait 20 years to hear all of his brothers, to hear them, uh, acknowledge that they did him harm, and another 17 years until they actually sought his forgiveness. We read back in Psalm 103, I'd ask you just to turn back there briefly. Speaking of God, verse 10, he has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. What does it mean to forgive and what sense is there that we forget? What, is, what does it mean that does God forget, to forget, forget our sins? As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Just as far as the east is from the west. Now, God does not literally forget our sins, but he does not bring them back up to us. Forgiveness means that you will treat the person though that offense had never happened. The one forgiving releases the offended party from any penalty. It also comes with a promise not to bring it up. Not only to bring it up again, to bring up something from five years ago and and to bring that up continually, but also it's a commitment to not talk to others, which leads to gossip and all manner of slander and these types of things. Can imagine if one of my children used the credit card to go put gas in one of the car, cars and then lost the credit card. They sought my forgiveness and all of that. And a month later, they're going to put gas in the car with a, the credit card. And I bring that up. You know, they sought my forgiveness. I forget. Okay, now this time, can you keep a little tighter grip on the credit card? That's the idea. We, we don't do that. It says application to so many of our relationships. 1 Corinthians 13 speaks so much to this, how love is not provoked and it does not take into an account a wrong suffered. The Bible makes no record of Joseph bringing up all of the ways in which the brothers poorly treated them, but offers, grants the forgiveness that has been requested and gives words of comfort and speaking kindly to them. A couple final words of application. Forgiveness is more than not holding a grudge. If the person is repentant, you don't demean them with verbal insults or any such things. This applies parents to your children, interpersonal relationships, roommates, whatever marriages. You should take the initiative in seeking reconciliation. Don't wait for the other person. If someone offends you, go to that person and gently confront them. Matthew 18. You are in danger if you focus too much on your own feelings and your own hurt rather than looking at the big picture of you and your sin before a holy God and granting that to a fellow sinner. Sometimes you may not feel like forgiving. It's just not an option, is it? Well, okay, forgive others as as you've been forgiven unless for this or that or whatever. No, we know. 
Peter was told 70 times, 70 times. It's not an option. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. How has God in Christ forgiven you, my friend? Partially? 99%? 50-50? No. Complete, full, and free is how he's forgiven you. And that's exactly the way we are to forgive others, just as the key words are there. And then we we should reaffirm affection towards the offender. Joseph, we see back in chapter 45, what does he do? He falls on all of his brothers' necks, weeping, showing the affection and the deep love that he had. And some, some of us have been deeply wounded. It can be hard, but the Lord will help you to walk in obedience in this area and truly forgive. There's no temptation except for that which is common to man. God will walk through that and show you how. Remember, it's a transaction. It's not a feeling. If we're relying on our feelings, we're not going to be quick to forgive or even seek forgiveness. Corey Ten Boom illustrated that well. And a warning to those who will not forgive, if somebody comes to you, seeks forgiveness, I'll think about that, I'll get back to you type of thing. The warning is your joy, your personal joy will be sapped. And anger and resentment will grow and fester and fester. And and you could commit murder or a deep-rooted bitterness could set in. And we're told in Hebrews 12, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God and no root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. Well, as we wrap up the life of Joseph, just a couple words of application. There's been so many types of Christ, the way Joseph uh, is, and we've, we've highlighted many of those. A.W. Pink lists about a hundred of those. Some of them are a bit of a stretch. Charles Spurgeon says this, you might well read the account of Joseph 20 times, and you shall not have exhausted all of the types of Christ. Just like Joseph God predestined that Christ would suffer so that he would save his people. Acts 2.23 This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of a God, you nailed to a cross at the hands of godless men, putting him to death. Just as Joseph was all under, God meant it for good, he's working behind it, so too with Christ. Jesus, like Joseph, accepted the Father's will concerning his own suffering. John 18, 11. Joseph's forgiveness of his brothers is a picture of Christ's forgiveness towards us. That's the most glaring one, the one we need to take away here. He receives and embraces us just as the father does the prodigal that's running back home. The father runs out to grab him and embrace him, to reaffirm affection, to affirm the the forgiveness that is there. Not only does Christ God forgive us, but he enriches us. 2 Corinthians 8 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for your sake, he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Brethren, he's removed our filthy rags, our filthy rags, and clothed us with his righteousness, so that now when God looks upon us, he sees the righteousness of Christ, flaws and all. We have been clothed with his perfect righteousness. A couple final points. We must learn to forgive as we have been forgiven. 
away with such thoughts, but I want them to pay for all the pain that I went through. Or, you know, I want to exact revenge, or when I'm good and ready, or when I feel like it. No, you must learn to forgive just as we have been forgiven. Remember when you came to Christ, many of us, it was at the lowest part of our life, when we're in the pit, and we cry out for mercy, acknowledging our sin. We don't hear from heaven or from some chapter and verse that pops in our brains. Maybe, 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 if, 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 no, we are forgiven fully and freely at that time. So too, we must forgive others. Holding a grudge is to put yourself in the place of God, isn't it? It's, it's to say that I don't think God's going to judge this rightly, so I better make sure to oversee this. You don't want to be like the man in South Dakota. It allows something to fester for over 50 years, and then you commit a horrible, horrible act. What a miserable life that man must have lived to constantly be reminded of that. Let us rest in the word of God. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Jesus equates this anger, this resentful anger with murder. Matthew 5, verse 21. Listen to Spurgeon. Be not in haste. Let anger cool down. Say nothing and do nothing to avenge yourself. You will be sure to act unwisely if you take up the cudgels and fight your own battles. And certainly you will not show the spirit of the Lord Jesus. It is nobler to forgive and let the offense pass. To let an injury wrangle in your bosom and to meditate revenge is to keep old wounds open and to make new wounds. Better to forget and forgive. He says in another place, forgive and forget. For when you bury a mad dog, don't leave its tail above the ground. Just like Joseph's brothers, sometimes we can doubt our own forgiveness before a holy God. Some of you are new Christians. Some of you are not Christians yet. Many of us are Christians. We've been Christians for any amount of time, some 50, 60 years. But sometimes we can experience periods of doubt, doubting our salvation and lacking assurance. By the way, our confession chapter 18 is a whole chapter based on assurance, and I, I commend that to you if you're struggling with this today. We can doubt our forgiveness of our sins. Is it really real? Have I truly been forgiven? And why is that? It's because as we grow in our sanctification, we see more and more of the ugliness and the vileness of our sins. I know God forgives sin, but can he forgive all of this sin? My sin? Can he really forgive that? We can go through periods of doubt and doubt our forgiveness Sometimes that comes from mischaracterizations of the character of God, not understanding God's character completely, not understanding His plan of salvation and and an effectual atonement. Sometimes it can be rooted in that. Sometimes we can think, but my situation's different. How could He forgive me? Remember the parable of the talents, the the one that only had one and went and buried it. What does he say? Because I thought you were a hard master. That's why I did not go and engage. And some of you may think that God is a cruel master looking down upon you and frowning upon you. If you are in Christ, he sees nothing but the perfect righteousness of Christ. 
And that you can take to the bank. Your struggle with your fear that you are not forgiven can be coming from a guilty conscience, perhaps. Maybe you haven't dealt with certain sins that need to be dealt with. You need to have dealings with God. Stop making flimsy vows before God and, and seeking to affect those vows with the effort of your own strength rather than relying on the Holy Spirit for both change and conformity to Christ as well as assurance that we are in Christ. Brethren, his provision for you in Christ is sure and certain and cannot be broken if you're a child of God here today. If you are a true Christian, look to the cross, to the eye of faith. Read everything in the scriptures. Jesus, keep me near the cross. I love that hymn. Live near the cross. Because as you see the cross and you realize that Christ has died for my sins, you know that you are one of his. He cried out on the cross, it is finished. There's nothing more you can offer or add to your own salvation. Have you been forgiven of your sins? today are you living with an enormous weight of guilt that needs to be dealt with is your conscience constantly afflicted because you know you are not right before a holy god run to christ run to him today as pilgrim and pilgrim's progress the burden falls off finally the burden of all the guilt of his sin falls off as he sees the cross and runs, as it were, to Christ. Come to him today, and he will save you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we thank you so much for your goodness and your mercy, undeserved favor through Christ towards us. Lord, we are amazed at this blessing that you have bestowed upon us, a waterfall of blessings of your love cascading upon us every hour and every minute of our lives. Lord, may we revel in that great truth. You will never leave us. You will never forsake us. That we indeed are children of God. And Lord, we who have received such abounding mercy, such unmerited favor and grace to us, Lord, how can we be those that would not keep short accounts, that would not be quick to seek forgiveness and quick to grant forgiveness? Help us, O God. Use this message, and each one here, you know so many more details than what I do about each person and what they've gone through in the recent weeks and months and years, but Lord, you do. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified and that it would be to our eternal good. We ask in the precious name of Jesus, amen.